We'll be reading from 2 Peter 1, verse 16 to 21. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came by, came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Thank you very much, uh, Cassie, for leading us in prayer and for uh, reading scripture for us. Um, as you can see from the outline, uh, from the title of the sermon, from what you've been hearing about in our discussions uh, about Grace Valley Church, what's going on here lately, and what our uh, plans are for uh, pub talks and the like, um, we are currently in a sermon series on objections to the Christian faith. These are, these are things that non-Christians would say, here's a problem I have with Christianity. Last time, uh, what we looked at was how there are uh, a lot of people out there who simply think that the idea of God, not even necessarily a Christian God, but the idea of God generally is silly. And there's no evidence for the existence of God at all. So why would you Christians believe in this being? And so what we did was we kind of dealt with that challenge and that struggle that people have uh, and tried to show that it's not all that unreasonable to believe in a higher power. Now, we, we were not attempting to necessarily prove the God of Scripture. We were talking about the idea of God... Uh, generally. And the reason that we did that is because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make a, what, what you can call a, is a cumulative case for the, the God of Scripture as being the true God. What I mean by that is you have to start with helping people overcome the obstacle that a God could exist at all, and then you have to take them hopefully to the next step that the God of the Bible is a realistic God because the Bible itself is a reliable word from God or word of God. So yeah, I hope you're understanding why we're, why we're following the process we're following and why we're going to this issue this morning. The issue this morning is about the book, the Bible. Really what it all boils down to is this. Can you believe the Bible? Can you trust that the Bible actually is the word of God, right? Christians are people of the book, meaning that what we believe comes out of this, this codex, this 
collection of writings. What we believe about God, what we believe about human, humankind and, and history, what we believe about this person named Jesus, what we believe about uh, salvation, etc., what we believe about life and death and life after a death, and what we believe about right and wrong and how a person ought to live and meaning in life, all that kind of stuff. It all comes from this book. Now, people will argue that, yes, Scripture is an incredible book. The Bible is an incredibly amazing piece of literature. And they might even go so far as to say that it's, it's a deeply profound book with tremendous wisdom contained in it. And they might even go on to say that it is extremely influential. And it's true, it is very influential. I mean, the Bible, year in and year out, since the invention of the printing press, and I guess technically even before, has been the number one selling book throughout the world every single year. Every year. That's a pretty significant thing just in and of itself. Not only that, uh, but the Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages, which is 10 times more than the, than the second closest book. It is the most studied book in all of history by a long shot. And as important as all that is, and as interesting as all that is, at the end of the day, that doesn't answer the question, the real question that matters, which is this, can you believe it? I mean, like the Communist Manifesto, very influential book, and the Harry Potter series is a very popular series of books. But so what? Is it true? That's what really matters. And most people would say, no, no, the Bible isn't true. Interviews with non-Christians pretty regularly, and one of the things I ask them about is, what do you think about the Bible? And virtually, to a man or woman, they will say, well, the Bible is a fascinating book, and the stories about Jesus are amazing and incredibly interesting. But is it different from other books? Is it inspired as opposed to just inspirational? Is it really any more inspirational or inspired or sacred, so to speak, than any of the other religious texts or Shakespeare or philosophers like Plato's Republic or, or Aristotle's Poetics or whatever? No, it's not. Einstein, Albert Einstein, I hope you've heard of him. I won't tell you who he is if you haven't. Albert Einstein summarizes what most modern people think about the Bible with a quote that is on the front of your bulletin if you want to look at it. He says this, the Bible is a collection of honorable, thank you, Albert, but still primitive legends, which nevertheless are pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me, at least, speaking of himself, change this. And that's a really, really good summary of how a lot of people think about the Bible, which is, it is honorable, it, it is respectable. Not everything in it is honorable or respectable, that's for sure, but much of it is honorable and respectable. But let's face it, it's primitive, it's, it's myths, it's, it's written by a bunch of people a long, long time ago who didn't understand the world the way it really is, and they needed to come up with some way of explaining it, so they wrote these stories to help them understand it. And that's essentially what the Bible is. It, it has good in it, it has bad in it, but certainly it is not some special word of God that you are supposed to submit your life to. No way. Now, 
Cassie prayed that we would be a open and honest community. That's a prayer that I have too. And in the interest of openness and honesty, let me tell you, sometimes I think I'm a minister for the sole reason that it forces me to study the Bible, pray, and follow Jesus. Sometimes I became a pastor is because if I wasn't forced somehow to believe, I might not. I mean, think about what a Christian believes. A Christian believes that a man who lived some 2,000 years ago was not just a man like every other man, but was actually the son of the creator of the universe who came into this world to live a perfect life because we couldn't and we should have, and then die a substitutionary death on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins so that the God who created us, who rightly deserves to condemn us to a, a, a place or a condition called hell, won't do that. And that if we believe in Him, we can have purpose and meaning in life, and that at the end of our life, when we die, our soul will go somewhere to be with this Jesus, and at some point in the future, this Jesus who, after He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, He's going to come back, and He's going to actually raise people out of their graves, and He's going to create a whole new world where we're going to live with Him in perfect harmony forever and ever and ever and ever ever. Does that not, on some level, sound dubious to you? I confess, there are definitely times where that sounds dubious to me. I look around and I think, did I drink the Kool-Aid? How can we know that all that stuff is true? You know what? It boils down to the Bible told me so. There's a guy named Karl Barth, who was a brilliant theologian in the last century. I mean, brilliant. Maybe one of the most brilliant theologians since the Apostle Paul. And Karl Barth, when he was on his deathbed, was asked, you know, not like, not like, like I'm about to go, but he, he was going to die very soon. He knew he was going to die, and he was being interviewed, and he was asked, in all your years of studying theology, what is the most profound truth that you have uncovered? And he said, without skipping a beat, without batting an eye, he looked at his interviewer and he tells me so. Wow. It all boils down to the book and who the book talks about, the Jesus of the book. Now, we have uh, the opportunity this morning to think through whether or not this book is truly reliable and worth banking your life on. Because I've banked my life on this book and on the Jesus revealed in this book. Have I drunk the Kool-Aid? I don't think so. I think actually that I've planted my feet on the surest foundation for life 
possible. Why? Well, the answer can be found in the Bible. And you're like already going, wait a minute, that's a circular argument, that doesn't work. Stick with me, okay? Stick with me. We're going to look at this passage together from 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Apostle Peter actually addresses the question, can you trust the Bible? And what's fascinating is, is that the problems people have today with the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, and the story of his life, death, and resurrection, and, and, and the story of the Bible, the problems we have today are no different from the problems that Peter faced. People had the same problems way back then with, with the Bible that people have today. And so the biblical authors actually dealt with it and addressed it. And so we're going to wrestle through a little bit how the Apostle Peter addresses this issue from 2 Peter. And just a reminder to you, we hope to have a Q&A after the message uh, to flesh out any questions that you might have. If you're thinking ahead of time of what those questions might be, uh, feel free to write them down as we're going along, following the sermon outline, whatever. And you can text them to me. If you'd rather not raise your hand and ask them, you can text them to me. My number is right there in the bulletin. So let's go to work here. We're going to look here at... <clears throat> Why, Peter says, <clears throat> excuse me, we can believe the Gospels. And we're going to focus on the Gospels, and here's why we're going to focus on the Gospels, okay? Because the Gospels say they give us the life of Jesus Christ. And they make the claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if they're right, if that's true, if they they prove or demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then that makes Jesus Christ the final authority about the rest of the Bible, and is definitely the Word of God. Do so you follow what I'm saying? So that's why we're going to focus on the Gospels, what they say about Jesus. Because if they're true, what they say about Jesus is the Son of God, and He thought the rest of the Bible is trustworthy, then you and I, since we have it on the authority of God Himself, can believe the best rest of the Bible is trustworthy as well. Okay, here we go. Uh, point number one, first one, follow the outline. It says there, you can trust the Bible because, one, it is a reliable collection of historical documents. Verse 16, the apostle Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when, you, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear that? We did not follow cleverly invented stories. He says, we actually told you about actual history. These are not invented stories. These are history. He, Einstein says, look. What does Einstein say again? He says, these are primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. And the apostle Peter says, no, these are not prim primitive legends. These are the real deal. These things actually happen. Luke takes great pains to demonstrate the same thing. In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, listen to what Luke says. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, 
It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So here's what Luke is saying. He's saying, look, there were eyewitnesses who saw these events. I am an investigative journalist, and I went around, and I asked all these people if these, these things actually happened. This is not a Greek myth to explain the history of the world and the rise of the Greek nation st- or city-state and all that kind of stuff. This is not the Brothers Grimm. In other words, Christianity is not based on a subjective belief. Understand this. Christianity rises and falls, lives and dies as a faith on history, on actual history. It's the only religion, world religion that does. C.S. Lewis was once quoted as saying, don't believe the gospel because it's relevant or because it's exciting, or because it's personally satisfying. He said, believe the gospel because it's true and exciting and personally satisfying. But don't base your faith on simply your subjective experience. Base it upon the fact that it is true. In other words, Christianity is not, this is true for me, this is my truth. Christianity is not a practical religion, okay? A lot of skeptics, and I understand completely because I do this too, frankly, but a lot of skeptics, they think that people are Christians because it's a crutch that helps them get through life or it's a, it's a philosophy. Everybody's got a philosophy of life, right? And you need to have some sort of way of living. And so it works for them. Just like another religion might work for someone else or, another relig- or no religion at all works for a third person. And while Christianity does work for a lot of people, Christianity actually is not a very practical religion at all. Cassie prayed for persecuted Christians in other places in the world, which we pray for a lot here. In other places in the world, Christianity is a very impractical religion. Anybody who's a Christian in certain places in the world is not picking a practical religion at all. It's causing all kinds of problems in their lives. And if you actually follow Jesus Christ with the kind of sincerity he calls for in the Bible, even in this world, even in the Western culture that we live in, here in safe North America where we're not being persecuted and stuff like that, if you follow Jesus here, you will find it incredibly impractical at times. You will find it a pain if I can put it that way, it will cramp your style. It will make life difficult for you. You will, be, you will make decisions about things to do with your life that people will shake their heads at and think, why would you do that? Why would you go make your life harder? Honestly, why would you? I, I really want to use... Okay, I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to use Reuben and Jamie as an example. Why would you go up to Sioux Lookout and be a doctor in one, of the, in one of the most difficult parts of the country? Why would you do that? You're becoming a doctor. You know how much money you're going to make? And, and I decide to do things because they're easy or because they make me a lot of money. I, I do things based upon what my Savior is calling me to do. Why? Because I believe he really is who he said he is. Because I trust what the Bible says about him. Because the Bible is historically accurate. 
Why would the world says, look, you should keep your faith private. Go ahead and practice it privately, but why are you Christians always trying to get other people to believe it too? Why are you always evangelizing? And the answer is because we think it's true. It's not because we think, look, I found this really awesome new kind of herbal supplement that if you take it, it'll just make you feel healthier. It's, oh, it's really handy. It's not like that. Like, we think this is, this is actually true. Why would anybody evangelize just their own personal opinions? Christians evangelize because they believe that this is true objectively in the real world. So that's the first thing. Now, okay, look, I know what someone's saying. I know it because I've said this in my own head. I argue with myself all the time, okay? Someone says, so what? Uh, you can say that all these things happened. Peter can say that he saw all these things happen, but it doesn't make it true, right? And the answer would be, that's right, it doesn't. Just making the claim that you were there when these things happened does not mean that these things happened. People lie all the time. And that's point number two. These aren't just a reliable collection of historical documents. They were written down, it says, by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Verse 16, Paul says, or Peter, sorry, says this. Um, we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we saw this with our own eyes. And then in verse 18, he says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So he's saying, I saw this, I heard this with my own eyes and my own ears. It's true. And that's important. Because, you know, when you watch Law and Order, some of you maybe have watched Law and Order before, right? And so the, it's, it's the cops and the lawyers, right? The, DA, the, the, the police and the DA. And so in the first half, you have the cops discovering a crime, investigating the crime, and they're coming up with all this evidence, right? And they're finding a, a gun, and they're finding blood spatter, and they're all this kind of stuff. And they put together a case, and then they go to the DA, and they say, we found a suspect, we know what they've done, here's all the evidence, and the DA looks over the evidence, and he says, there's not enough evidence here to convict. It's circumstantial evidence. What we need, he says, or she, we need a witness. See, if you get an eyewitness, a, 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 a credible eyewitness, ah, now we've there was an eyewitness to these events. I saw them with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. He's not the only one who does that. One page over in your Bible, if you have one, in 1 John chapter 1, this is what the Apostle John says. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and and." with our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was from the Father and has appeared to us. John does the exact same thing Peter does. He says, look, I'm an authoritative witness to the life and death and ministry of Jesus Christ because I actually saw it with my own eyes. And again, your response, I know what you'd say because I'm arguing with myself. So what? Two guys can make it up. And that's true. Two guys possibly could make it up. But here's the thing. You know who Blaise Pascal is? He was a 17th century philosopher and theologian and scientist. Brilliant man. And he once put it very, very 
succinctly when he said, you know, I believe the witnesses who have their throats cut. And what he meant by that was this. All these disciples claimed that they saw Jesus die and rise again from the dead, and they saw him do all these miracles and stuff. They claimed that he was the son of God. Not a single one of them, under any kind of persecution or pressure or whatever, recanted that and said, no, it ain't true. And many, almost all of them, except one, actually, basically all of them except one, died a martyr for, these, for this teaching that Jesus lived and died and rose again. Why would you die for a lie? Why would, okay, people die for a lie. That's true. But would, if they all knew it was a lie, if every one of those disciples knew it was a lie, would every single one of them die for the lie? Isn't that a bit of a stretch? But the point is even deeper in that they did this, they, they were eyewitnesses to this during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So Luke said, I went and interviewed them. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ rose again, and after his resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people at one time, and then he says, interestingly enough, he says, many of whom are still living. And the reason he says that is basically this. If you think I made this up, go ask them. Go ask these other people. I want to make up a story. If I want to make up a story that somebody flew across this room today, defied gravity, and actually flew across this room this morning. So it's April, it's April, am I kidding? It's May something. May 21st, 2017, at 11 o'clock in the morning-ish, 11.01 a.m., somebody flew across this room. And I wanted to make that public claim and say, I saw it and I was an eyewitness and all that kind of stuff. I've got to make sure that no other eyewitnesses who were there at the same time on the same day are alive to contradict my testimony, right? I have to make sure you're all dead. And the apostles actually do the opposite. They say, there are 500 of them. They're out there, go ask them. Mark mentions two people, Rufus, and I forget the other guy's name, uh, and basically is saying, oh, go ask Rufus if you don't believe what I'm saying. So the apostles actually, now, okay, I know what some of you are thinking. Again, you're thinking, yeah, but I've heard that really all these claims to the divinity of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, resurrection, all that stuff, that was added later, like way, way after uh, the actual events. So these very, uh, these very zealous monks, you know, they kind of edited these documents in the New Testament and, and put this stuff in there to sell this idea that Jesus really is who he said he was and that kind of thing. And besides, they would say, you, you can't know if this actually happened because we don't have the original Greek New Testament books anyway. They've been lost to us. We don't have them. And that's true. We don't. We can't read them. But we do have copies. We have almost 6,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. And you might say to yourself, well, is that a lot? I don't know. Is that a lot? Well, here's a little comparison. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, you know how many copies we have of that? Ten. 
Aristotle's Poetics, where if you take a undergrad philosophy degree at any of our Canadian universities, you will have to read at some point as a accurate explanation of the philosophy of Aristotle. You know how many copies we have of that? Five. Of the writings of Homer. Have you read the Odyssey or the Iliad? Some people have. Watch the movie. They're probably more interesting. Um, <clears throat> pieces of ancient Greek literature ever. They get stuck. <clears throat> Excuse me. Apologize. If you're like me, I was an English major in university. I had to read these things because they're, they're considered great literature. You know how many copies we have of Homer's incredible literature? Ten. We constructed the Iliad and the Odyssey from ten. Only ten copies. And of the New Testament, we have some six, almost 6,000. And people say, but those are not the originals. They're copies. Well, yeah. I, yes, they're copies. Between the original uh, writings of the Gallic Wars and the first copies that we have is 900 years. You follow what I'm saying? So the earliest copy of the Gallic Wars that we have access to is 900 years after the Gallic Wars were actually written. Of Aristotle's poetics, it's like 1,400 years, okay? And of Homer's uh, writings, we're not exactly sure, but we believe it's more than 600 years. The New Testament, the earliest copies of the New Testament that we have are less than 150 years from the originals. And if you compare all these copies with one another, you know, there's almost 6,000 of them. You read this one, this one you found in, let's say, Antioch. And you read it, and you're like, what does it say in 1 John? And you read 1 John, okay, it says all that. And then you go over, and you find this other one that was found in Rome, and you read that one, you go, and what you discover is, is that 95%, there's 95% agreement in what is written down between all these copies. 95%. And on top of that, you have these church fathers who are writing after the New Testament, and they're quoting the New Testament all over the place in their writings, and you can cobble together just from the writings of the church fathers, 95% of the New Testament, and it's just as accurate as the rest. Add to that the fact that by 500 AD, the New Testament is written in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin on top of Greek, and when you read the whole kit and caboodle, all of it, it's all agreeing with itself. So what kind of super monks were able to go back and change almost 6,000 copies of the New Testament in Greek and what the church fathers said and in Syriac and in Latin and in Coptic and make sure that their changes all agree? It's just not realistic. I, I guess it's possible. I guess. But it's not realistic. But you can say they made it up, but they died for this. Besides, have you ever heard the story, uh, the, the line, history is written by the victors? I'm not getting a lot of reaction. Well, there's a saying, history is written by the victors, okay? The people who win the wars are the people who write history. That's the point. So you would say, I guess, by that logic, Peter, Paul, John, these guys who wrote the New, New, New Testament, they're the victors. But look at how the victors are portrayed. Look at them. They're portrayed badly, really, really badly. They're petty. 
They're argumentative and fighting with one another. They're dull. Jesus is constantly telling them what he came to do. And they're like, you're going to die? I don't get that. Like, it goes on and on. They're incredibly selfish. They're fighting with one another. They're cowardly. So that when Jesus finally starts to fulfill his mission and go to the cross, his disciples scatter like a bunch of chickens. Why would you write such... If you're going to make up the story, why wouldn't you make yourself look good rather than look so bad? All right, that's point number two. The rest go way quicker. That's written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Number three, that report supernatural events. Verse 17. Basically, verse 17 is, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. This is the story on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it is a supernatural event, not a superhuman event. The New Testament describes Jesus as raising the dead, as, as healing blind people and lame people and deaf people from birth. Walking on water. And the best one of all, of course, in the words of Vodi Bacham, Friday dead, Sunday risen. And we might say, but that stuff, that can't happen. And the response would be, why? Why can't that happen? If there is a God, why can't that happen? If we live in an open system, if this universe is an open system and not a closed system, and that's what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, well, you missed it. Get it online, I guess, if you want. But if there is a God, if that's possible, then everything in the Bible is possible too. Just study quantum theory a little bit. There's so much in quantum theory that, that scientists are discovering that they're like, that's impossible, but quantum theory says it is. Light is a particle. No, it's a wave. No, it's a particle. No, it's a wave. It's both at the same time, or it chooses what it wants to be. That's impossible, and yet it's true. Why can't this be true? Number four, which fulfills specific prophecies, which fulfills specific prophecies, Verse 20, Peter says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about for, by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These prophecies were fulfilled because it's the Word of God. And it's not vague prophecies, it's specific prophecies like the cross. For example, on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he say that? Of all the things he could have said, he said that because he was quoting Psalm 22. It's the first line of Psalm 22. And essentially, Jesus is saying, Psalm 22 is about me. And you go, hmm, that's interesting. What does Psalm 22 have to say about Jesus? Psalm 22, it's written a thousand years before the life of Jesus by a guy named King David. What does that have to do with Jesus on the cross? And you go to Psalm 22 and you read stuff like this. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then you go back to Matthew and you read the account of the cross and you're like, what? That's exactly what people did to him. They even said those specific things. And you think, wow, Matthew just wrote that in because you wanted to make this look like prophecy was being fulfilled. Okay, but how does Matthew deal with this? Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
How did he orchestrate that? How did Jesus orchestrate that crucifixion? That was something that the Romans in league with the Jews put together. Furthermore, in verse 17, it says, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. And you think, what does that have to do with anything? He, I can count all my bones. Well, when you're crucified, in order to get it done quicker, because these people have things to do, they want to watch you die and then carry on with the rest of their day, what they would do is, is they would actually break your legs so that you couldn't breathe. Because the way you breathe on a cross is by pushing up with your feet to open your lungs up. <gasps> And then when you breathe out, you sag again, and you actually die by asphyxiation. So what they would do is they'd break your legs so that you couldn't go, and you would just suffocate to death. But interestingly enough, strangely enough, Jesus' legs weren't broken, contrary to how the practice was usually done. And then finally, in verse 18, it says, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. How did they make that happen? Listen, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet when David wrote about it. This demonstrates that this is a specific prophecy, one of what's, what, what scholars say is up to 2,000 specific prophecies from the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's why Peter says in verse 19, he says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, meaning we're on the other side of the fulfillment of all these prophecies. We can look back and see that it actually happened. We are more certain. Fifth, verse 20, the prophecies fulfilled, the demonst they demonstrate that it is the word of God, not just the word of people, not just the word of man. How do you test a prophet? The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18 says this. This is how you test a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, beginning at verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like, for, like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words and the prophets speak in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. Okay, that's pretty severe. So how do we know if this prophet should be believed or put to death? And it says there, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? The answer is, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Hear that? Because God does not lie. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion with a sacred text that makes specific prophecies and relies on specific prophecies and the fulfillment of specific prophecies. No other major world religion relies on that for their authenticity. Christianity puts itself on the hook. It says, test, test. We can handle it. Like we, who are we? Jesus says, I can handle it. Test me. Last thing, last thing but it's the most important thing. So I know I've like, probably some of you have stopped like 15 minutes ago because <laughs> it was just coming too fast and too confusing and I apologize. But now please listen because this is really the one that ultimately matters. You can trust the Bible because it reveals the true Jesus to you. It's the most important thing. 
Think about this. Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus, right? Three years at least. He saw Jesus do all kinds of stuff. Saw him raise people from the dead. Saw him walk on water. Saw him take a little bit of food and turn it into enough to feed multitudes, right? He saw all this stuff. He saw all this prophecy being fulfilled. And now here he is in writing his letter, and he wants to think of an example of the life and ministry of Jesus to demonstrate that Jesus really is who he says he is. He's, he's looking for evidence. And of all the stories that he could have chosen, he chooses this one about the transfiguration. Why does he choose the one of transfiguration? You, re you remember the story of the transfiguration? Jesus is on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and all of a sudden, boom, he's like starts shining super brightly. And we're not, he didn't reflect the sun, okay, like this light from what looked like a thousand suns started emanating from him, started coming from him. And all of a sudden, two major Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, show up and stand there beside him. And they're all talking. They're having this conversation. And, and the, the three disciples are watching all of this, and they're freaking out. And then all of a sudden, this cloud appears, and out of the cloud, they hear this booming voice. I'm assuming it's a booming voice, because if it's the voice of God, it should boom, right? And it says, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So that's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. What on earth was going on on the Mount of Transfiguration? On that mountain, the disciples saw, okay, they saw for the first time the glory and majesty of the divine Son of God. It's, it's like... The veil was pulled back. If I, if I had to describe it, I'm a picture-in-my-head person, so when I read the Bible stories, I'm always picturing it in my head, trying to figure out what it wants to look like. And it's like, it's like Jesus pulled back his skin a little bit, and then like light came bursting out of it. I know, that's kind of weird, and I hope that's not considered irreverent. But the idea I'm trying to get across is, is that Jesus had clothed his divinity in his humanity, and so he walked among us so that when you were walking down downtown Toronto and you're walking with a bunch of people and Jesus walked by with a couple of his disciples and he wasn't doing anything spectacular, you wouldn't notice that he was the son of God. You wouldn't say, whoa, look at him. He must be the son of God. And on this occasion, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus did something. He, he peeled back the veil just a little bit so that the disciples could see that he had a majesty, he had a divinity, he had a glory that no other person had. And interestingly enough, if you read the, the accounts of it, they all come on the heels of Peter saying, when Jesus asked them, who do you guys think that I am? Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter actually realized that Jesus was special, that he was the Messiah, the long hoped for Messiah that they had been thinking about. But now he's actually letting them see just a glimpse of how glorious he is. And understand something. Many, many, many people think Jesus is a great guy. I talk to them all the time. He was a wise man. He was a social revolutionary. He was a reformer. He was a good man. 
But in scripture, you meet a Jesus who is beyond all that, just like Peter met someone who was beyond all that. This is a man who, as you read scripture, you encounter him and you learn him and you become attracted to him in a different way. His strength, his wisdom, his humility, his majesty, his kindness, his gentleness, and and you find yourself loving him more and more and wanting to be like him and wanting to be with him. Because he's not just a person. Because he's not just a man. He's what theologians have called for centuries the God-man. Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration what you discover when you read the Bible, that Jesus is not just a man of God. He's actually the Son of God. He's divine. And when you meet him in scripture, you change, you grow. Look, we all need a purpose in life. We, we are all longing for infinite love and we're in, longing for significance and security that in a way that the world just simply cannot provide it for us. And when you meet Jesus in the pages of scripture, you get that. Have you ever seen the movie Amistad? Any of you, ever, you see that movie? That's an amazing movie, okay? It's an amazing movie. If I had a video projector thing, like I'm not into that usually when I preach putting stuff on screens and everything, I would show you this clip because it's incredible. In the movie Amistad, it's about, slave, it's about black people from Africa being taken right out of their huts in West Africa, thrown on boats, slave ships, and brought to North America to be slaves, right? And... There's these, these slaves are sitting in a holding cell and they're waiting to be sold, okay? And they're all just sitting there. And one of them, he's flipping through a Bible. And he can't read English. He does, I don't, probably can't read at all. Doesn't understand it, but it has pictures. And he's, he's looking at the pictures. And then there's another guy looking, watching him and going, you know, you don't have to pretend to be interested in that. Nobody's watching you anyway. And the guy says, I think I'm starting to understand it. Come here. And so the guy comes over to him, and they start flipping through this thing, and they start looking at all these pictures, and he says, look, this man, and he's pointing to a picture of Jesus, he says, this man, he always walks around, and he's got the sun on his head, and have you seen old, old pictures of Jesus, he's always got a halo around his head, and he says, but he seems to be a great man, so he shows him a picture of him healing somebody, he shows a picture of Jesus with the little children coming to him, and of course the sun shining around his head, and he shows a picture of Jesus walking on water, and he says, this, this guy was a great man, and then he says, but something must have happened, because then it shows Jesus arrested and standing before the people at Pilate's palace, and then, and then the other guy says, well, he must have done something wrong, maybe he's a bad man, and he goes, why, what did we do wrong? They were arrested too, and they're being in this, in this holding cell as well. And then he says, and then, they, then he died, an innocent man, and he shows a picture of the cross. He goes, and he goes like this. He died, and he shows this cross. And then, but then he shows, but then something else happening, and he shows this empty tomb, and then they show a picture of the ascension, and there's Jesus going up, and then it shows a picture of heaven, and Jesus in heaven. And here's the thing. The guy goes, that's where our soul goes when it dies, when we die. And then he looks to the other guy and he says, that's where we're going to go when they kill us. It doesn't look so bad. 
just by looking at the pictures of the story of Jesus, this guy got hope to face his uncertain future, which he knew was going to end in death. And he sees this future and he says, it doesn't look so bad. And you might say, that's a really nice story, but it's not true. And my response to you would be, why not? Do you want it to be true? And if you say, yeah, I, I want it to be true, then I invite you to take up this book and read it. And read it to find out about Jesus. Read it to find out about Jesus. I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm laying a challenge before you. Throughout history, countless skeptics have said, I'm gonna prove that thing wrong. And they take it up and they read it and they read it deeply and by the end of it, they're confessing Jesus as their savior. It's not an uncommon story at all. Why? Because this book is the word of God and if it's not, if it's not the miraculous word of God, then Thomas Aquinas put it best when he said this. If this is not the miraculous word of God, then an even greater miracle happened. I should have put this quote on the, on the bulletin. I forgot to, sorry. He said, an even greater miracle happened. The conversion of over one half of the Roman world by the biggest lie in history and the moral transformation of lives into unselfishness, detachment, or sorry, into unselfishness and detachment from worldly pleasures and radically new heights of holiness by a mere myth. I invite you to read, take up and read, you know, and discover for yourself. But look to meet Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for giving us your word. Help us to believe it. We, we struggle to believe it. And I, I've given arguments and, and tried to convince people, and I, I know none of it ultimately is going to change hearts. The only thing that ultimately will is your spirit. So please, Father, work in our hearts by your spirit so that we can believe. In Jesus we pray. Amen.